0: Good morning, good morning, Rabbi Otay and Rabbi Otai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Um, we have uh, the opportunity today to learn some Torah together uh, for Hashemah, for Chanabat uh, mafega and the Shumamazah for and as well, Breakfast in the class is dedicated in loving memory and Lulun Nishmat Meir ben Avraham, Hanulad Sarah. We'll always remember his strength, warm character, kind heart, and devotion to his family. May his Nishama have the highest Aliyah and Shamaim by his grandchildren Miriam and David Isaac um, Ashvili. Breakfast in the class is dedicated in loving memory Lulun Nishmat Yosef ben Sarah by his children, grandchildren, great grandchildren, and great great grandchildren. May we be able to follow in his footsteps. That is dope right there. I want that for me. Just remember, like, when I'm 120, someone do this for me, okay? Grandchildren, grandchildren, -grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren, following the ways of Torah, inshallah. Also dedicated in honor of you, Shoah Yitzchak Ben Moshe's English birthday, a great husband, an amazing father, dedicated by his family in Las Vegas. Very special. You thought the Super Bowl was the only thing that was going on in Las Vegas? Breakfast in the Class listeners, out. Um, in Sin City as well. Okay. Uh, Daphna and Jake Mancher should also dedicate uh, in loving memory and lean Ephraim ben Menashe and uh Be'ezrat Hashem we should be zokhe to see um, and to bring nachat to all those that came before us parents and grandparents in Gan Eden And be reunited with them in the coming of Mashiach. Amen. Last but not least, the learning for this week is dedicated by the Torah Center Diamond Donors. Orly and Yisachar, Avichai, Amit, Alma, and David, Hakmun, Daniel, in loving memory of Chai, Hakmun. Hazaku Baruch. Let us begin. My friends, I want to share with you a powerful idea, uh, a warming idea on this frigid morning uh, in New York City. For all those that are scootering or that are uh, uh, riding their bicycles home, Please be extra careful. Um, it was uh, very treacherous coming here to Be'er Knesset this morning. Uh, everyone should needs to be make sure that they're being very careful. Also, when you're walking, you, uh, there were parts which are already black ice. So please, Dachilak, make sure that you get home safe and sound. Shluchem Mitzvah and Oni Zakim. Please only say Amen if you're listening to this live. To be clear, yesterday I got two emails from listeners about the. Uh, about the berachah. They said, when you say that you should only make a berachah if you're listening to this live, do you mean live that we're there in the room? Or do you mean live in the time that it's being recorded? I was like, hold on, let me get my thumb. Do you mean live? Sorry, I can't have the conversation without the thumb. That's why, by the way, when they have mittens... I don't know if you noticed, they have mittens, they have all the fingers in one part, but they still <laughs> leave you the thumb, because a rabbi could never be without, these fingers you could have in a mitten, but you can never be without a thumb. So, do you mean live? What's the answer? The answer is that so long as the bracha is taking place in the moment, even if you're not present, Chamo says a person could say live on the other side of the ocean, right? In fact, many people used to listen to selichot broadcast in the Eretz Israel via satellite uh, back in the day. All right, especially in places where they could not get a minyan, they would be answering um, amen. They would be answering kaddish kedusha during COVID. Also, we relied on that. You can't make a minyan through that. You're not present with the minyan, but you could answer why? Because the bracha is live. If you're listening to the beracha on YouTube, so it's been uh, uploaded, so the bracha is not being made now. Then that amen would be called amen yetoma, a orphaned amen. Because it's said too long after the Beracha was mentioned. So, just to be clear, that's what I mean when I say uh, that, uh, that statement. Let's begin. This is a machloket Rishonim regarding the commandment to build the Mishkan. The Dadze Kenimi Rashi, the Sforno, everybody gets involved. It is a party uh, up in the Rishonim's loft, okay? They're going back and forth trying to figure out. Who, sorry, when, at what point was the commandment given to build the mishkan? So, just a quick recap for those of you who don't know parashah, okay? The parashahs go like this. Tirumah, sorry, let's start with the one before that even. You have Yitro, right, which is the giving of the Torah. Mishpatim, which tells you the laws, but at the end of Mishpatim, kind of gives you the end of the giving of the Torah, okay? Then you have Tirumah, which is the commandment to build the temple, and Tetzaveh, the, commandment as well, the commandments as well to build and to create the clothing for the Kohanim. Then you have Kitisa. Kitisa is the story of the Egel, of the golden calf. Then you have Vayakel Pekudeh, which is that the Jewish people fulfilled the commandments of building the temple, and they built the temple, and they constructed all the clothing for it, and that's the order of the parashiyot. So if you're reading the parasha in order, a casual observer would think that the Mishkan was a commandment that took place prior to the sin of the Egel, after the giving of the Torah, but before the Egel. Okay? So that's the literal reading of the parashiyot. However, the Rishonim that disagree feel actually no. The giving of the Torah is then followed immediately by the sin of the golden calf. And then after the sin of the golden calf, that's when they were commanded to build the Mishkan. Okay? You understand the two camps? Now, according to the opinion that the, uh, the story of the Egel happened before they were commanded to build the Mishkan, So why is it put down in the parasha after? On that, the Rishonim give the quote, En mukdam u meukhar which means that events in the Torah are not necessarily always given in the historical sequence in which they happened. Sometimes there are things that happened in another time or another place, but the Torah brought the far thing closer to the beginning and skipped the middle in order to be able to illustrate that these two things... Are related or perhaps that there's a lesson from learning these two things one after the other which otherwise you would have lost indicating really that the Torah its highest allegiance is not in being a accurate historical retelling of events but rather it is a document teaching a person how to live their life so ordinarily things would be in the right order, except in a case where it, it was not in the right order, okay? And there, there's a reason why the Torah did not follow the sequential order uh, in order to teach you something. Is that clear, all right? So this is the machloket uh, of the Rishonim. Now, I wanna just, if I can, just take a little a second to understand what it is uh, that maybe perhaps drove them to this position. Why is it that they uh, that they are arguing about this concept? now? If you take a look, the Rishonim will bring you various proofs to either side of this conversation. Um, sometimes they'll bring uh, a Midrash. The Midrash says that the Mishkan was there to be able to bring kapara for the Egel. Right? In fact, there's something interesting and kind of oddly ironic about the fact that they build something out of gold as a medium to connect to God. And Hashem's like, no, don't do that. And then immediately following that, Hashem's like, "Build this thing out of gold to be a medium to connect to Hashem." Right? And the commentators point out what is the difference between the Egel and the Aaron and the Shulchan. Excellent, and that's why the Torah, in giving that commandment, says it again and again and again and again and again throughout the entire parashiyot of Yakhel Pikudeh, that they built this thing kaasher tzeva amunai et Moshe. They built it like God commanded Moshe, like God commanded Moshe, like God commanded Moshe. Why the unnecessary repetition? To illustrate a very deep and powerful lesson that oftentimes people decide that they want to take spirituality into their own hands. Like, I think this is a nice thing, so I'm going to do this. And that is a spiritual thing. Or it's the opposite of spirituality, right? You, You wouldn't know unless Hashem commanded you to do so. We don't get to dictate the laws of our relationship with Hashem. And sometimes you have things that people are doing that think or seem to them to be very spiritual, which could actually have disastrous ramifications. I'll give you an example. Sometimes you have people that go to pray at the graves of Sadiqim. Now that can be a very beautiful and powerful experience. Or it could be Avodah zara. Why? done correctly okay nathan said it beautifully and succinctly is it to or through interesting okay now there's some opinions that say that when you're praying at the at the site of a kever of a sadiq since the body of the sadiq was buried there it's the last point of connection for that sadiq with this earth right so you're communicating to the sadiq in shamaim and you're asking him please go and intercede on my behalf like mordechai told esther Please go into the king and, uh, and beg for the, in front of the king on behalf of the Jewish people. So sometimes people do that. Sometimes, and I've heard this, I've heard it with my own ears many times where people are begging a Sadiq for something. That is avodah zara. Again, let me make, I could not be more clear. That is foreign worship. It is uh, a worship of another power. It is giving power to someone or to something other than God. That is a disaster. Okay? Why do I say it's a slippery slope? Why do I say it's something that can be... Because done correctly, it's very important. We even find a a precedent for this in the Torah itself. Where do we find someone who goes to pray at the grave of Sadiqim? Kalev ben Yifune goes when the spies go to Israel. Yeshua has the blessing of Moshe as a protective a layer, a shield against the wicked plans and designs of the of the uh, Meraglim. But Kalev, who was not given that Berakha, he doesn't know what, what's going to protect him from going and joining this evil cabal of uh, Miraglim. So he goes to pray at the gravesite of the Avot. So you see already in the Torah, Kalev ben Yifune, a great Sadiq, who's mentioned numerous times in the Torah, right? Who was married to Miriam Haniviah. Okay, this is not your average Joe, all right? He himself went to the kever of the Avot, of the Avot HaKedoshim, the Ma'arat HaMachpelah, to pray that he does not fall in the Atzat HaMeraglim. But, but what is he praying? What did he pray there? Again, like we said, not to the Avot, but to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in the presence of the Avot, asking the Avot to intercede on his behalf, okay? I want to point out one more thing. Even asking the Sadiq to pray for you, right? If a person's not careful, they cross over that line. Because let me give you an example again, remind, let's just remember the only power is God. Does the koach, does the Sadiq have power to change God's mind? You give too much power to the Sadiq, again, you're in that same problem. So it's very important to understand what it is that we're doing. I went to a grave once, and I saw a fellow fully get down on his knees and bow to the tzion. And I'm thinking to myself, Shema Israel. you know what the dangerous thing, the, the scariest thing is the person, he thinks he's serving Hashem. That's what he thinks he's doing. But he's doing something on stone, no less. Bowing on his knees. Mamash avodah so it's important to be able to understand this point. God said, I know that when you built the Egel, you had the best of intentions. Like the Pasuk says in Teilim, right? Arbaim shana akud For 40 years, I fought with this nation, with this generation, the generation of the people that left Egypt. But the Pasuk says in the end, Va'omar am to'elev most people translate it is that their heart led them astray. And I said that their heart led them astray. But I remember once reading something that really, it touched me so deeply. One of the great tzaddikim, he, he said he was walking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth in the study. And he was very nervous, very upset. And the students came and they saw him. They said, Rebbe, what are you? And he says, I'm tr- I, can't, I, could not, I can't work out. How could the Jewish people have served it? How could? How could it be? How could they have served in Egel? How could they have complained? After seeing everything that went on, re- what was going on in this door De'a? We call them the door De'a, a generation of such great knowledge. How could they have made a mistake? And he answered, finally, you know what? I finally came to realize. Va'omar am Their mistake came, not from wanting to run away from God, but from toel levav. It came from a mistake of a desire to come close. It came from a mistake of the heart, of wanting to be, to have this connection with Hashem. And therefore, sometimes when a person feels so close, it is that closeness or the desire for that closeness that can lead them astray. Where do we find an example of this? The Pasuk says by Nadav and Avihu that they brought Esh Zarah, B'Korvam They were trying to get close. They tried to bring a Korban, but it wasn't a Korban that God had asked for first and foremost we have to ask ourselves what does god ask for what does hashem want from me there's enough mitzvot in the torah without you making up anymore and sometimes we get lost we get lost in this world of sigulot of various things that we should be doing and and we make a mistake we make a mistake someone said to me rabbi you know i really would like to start this in this class I think we could start this in this class, the community. I heard that it's a big zechut to have this and to get that and to have the other thing. I said, you know what else is a big zechut to have this and get that and get the other thing? Learning Torah. <laughs> and, and, and you know who wrote the Torah? Hashem wrote the Torah. Hashem wrote that. The book that you want was written by someone 200 years ago. I mean, great Sadiq. But the people we're talking about, it's not like they finished the Torah yet. We didn't do the Torah, we didn't do the Mishnah, we didn't do the Gemara, we didn't do that. But we should take this book from this Hasidic master, that's what we should be studying. Again, sometimes people, they don't have a proper hierarchical understanding of what's necessary, of what Hashem wants from them. So we're grasping at things which are good, they're beautiful, but understand where they stand on the totem pole. You know, it's wonderful to be making this, and to doing that. But you know what else is wonderful? Charity, taking care of the widow and the orphan. Like, look in the Torah. Does it say in the Torah that you should be doing that? Well, have you finished with the things that it says in the Torah yet? Are we good on the 613? And all the mitzvot the Rabbanan that we need to take now take on that extra thing? I mean, I love it. But like, let's get there in order. My friends, why am I sharing this with you? Because I believe... That the machloket between the Rishonim, as to why we built, why we built the temple, if it's because of the Egel, or if it was commanded before, is a fundamental question. Yes, they bring different proofs to why that's the case. This Midrash that says that Hashem, that they needed it as a kaparah. Uh, the idea that initially Hashem was going to appear to the Jewish people everywhere. And then after the story of the Egel, Hashem appeared to them from the Mishkan. All these ideas, they all connected. I love it. But I think that what drove the Rishonim was a fundamental question. The Mishkan was the connection of the Jewish people with God. It was the place where Am Yisrael was closest to Hashem. That's the idea. Correct? My friends... The Rishonim that felt that this was not in the aftermath of the Egel, they were bothered by an idea. How could it be that the source of connection of Am Yisrael, the Mishkan, which would ultimately become the Beta HaMikdash, how could that be that that was a response to something and not something that was true in the Licha Tehillah, that was necessary before they made a mistake? I'll give you an example. I want you to imagine that a person has a family heirloom, the most precious thing that they have in their family. I don't know, uh, a golden crown that was handed down generation to generation, it comes from David Amerech. How do you get it? I don't know. But you have in your family a crown that was handed down from generation to generation, David Amelech, right? Now, anyway, I want you to imagine that someone, uh, what's it called, they disrespect their father terribly. And they get into this huge fight with their dad. Anyway, the dad's, you know, maybe you're gonna, he throws him out of the business. Another, you know, another one of the kids comes and says, no, maybe give him another chance. Comes back into the business. As soon as he comes back into the business, the father comes to the son. He's like, listen, you made this terrible mistake. I'm taking you back in the business. I want to give you a special gift. Here's this gift, the crown of King David, and give it to you. The other kids are looking on, they're like, are you serious right now? We're the ones that didn't make the mistake. He's the one you want to give the crown to? Right, the one, this one thing that's been panned down for generations, my friends, that's a mashal. Where does Avraham Avinu do the Akedah? On Har HaMoriah. What's gonna be in that place? Beit HaMikdash. Where does God create the world from? Har HaMoriah. From the stone, the Eben from that place. Amazing. Where does, according to some opinions, where does Moshe Rabbeinu see Hashem? One opinion is that he sees him on the mountain, of Harsinai. Another opinion is that he sees him on the mountain of Moriah. God brought Hara Moriah to that place. The two beautiful pshat from the Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. Doesn't matter. This Hara Moriah, it's been in the story of the world's creation up until this point. From then, Yaakov Avinu, where's the dream? Hara Moriah. It's all there. This is the special place. What does Yaakov say? He already says from then that this is going to be the house of Hashem. This is something that we've been talking about for generations. It's been in the family forever. And all of a sudden, according to these opinions, they make a sin and Hashem's going to whip it out and be like, That's what you think? was the impetus for the giving of the Mishkan to the Jewish people when they messed up and Hashem threw them out of business and Moshe convinced them to take them back. Hashem's like, well, I have this gift. I, you know, I was going to give it to you at a better time, but here we are. The Rishonim that feel that this commandment must have been given before, it doesn't make sense to them that it comes in the aftermath of the Chet Are you with me? So... That opinion we get. And what do we have over here, if that's the case? We have a commandment that comes before the Egel, and that's why it's in this order. The other opinion, which really is the opinion that needs to defend its position. Because if you look at the Torah, what comes first? The Mishkan. If you want to tell me the Mishkan comes second, you've got to back up your opinion, right? In Mukdamu Mebuchar Torah, I have to prove my point. What do they say? So They say something that I think is very, very powerful. And let's start with the words of the Gemara. In the place where a Baal Teshuvah stands, gimurim enam omdim. Perfect tzadikim cannot attain. One more time. In the place where a person. Who has done teshuvah stands person who's repented from their ways repented from their sins stands a tzaddik gamur does not stand a perfect tzaddik cannot stand what does this mean you did teshuvah so what happens you had a sin you erased it so now yeah, you were negative and now you came back to zero i'm a tzaddik i'm at two right <laughs> Why, you just came back here. Why in the world would you be higher than me? And, and how could it be that I never did anything wrong? I'm on a lower level for not having done something wrong and then fixed that thing that was wrong. How could, such a, how could that be? There's so many different understandings and approaches to this concept. Uh, it's like, it's a very wide understanding. One of the ideas, I saw you whispering to him, I'm guessing that you told him, the idea of when a person does teshuvah, his sins turn into mitzvot. Is that the one that you said? I knew it. Okay. <laughs> I call myself an observant Jew. Right? That's one opinion. That the sins of the, of the rasha are now turned into mitzvot. I, I don't know if I buy that. No, I don't, not that I don't buy that that is the case. I do buy it. Can you tell me why I don't buy that that's a good enough answer? No, he's saying the That when a person does teshuvah from love, then their sins are turned into mitzvot. Because the tzaddik does mitzvot, so he keeps growing higher. While you were doing sins and then turning those sins into mitzvot, you know what I was doing? Actual mitzvot, right? So, however many sins you had, you turned into mitzvot, right? You have to be a bad person. I mean, the Sadiq would need to be very inefficient in his tzadiking, <laughs> while you were rashiing, right? For this, not for this to be a hejbon, right? So I don't know that I love that. My tongue-in-cheek answer to that is, it's much easier to be bad. One second, it's much easier to be bad. So the Sadiq is fighting his Yetzirah the whole time. He's got a Yetzirah and a fighting it out. So he's doing mitzvot, but at the rate of having his Yetzirah and his Yetzirah fight. The Rasha doubles down and his Yetzirah, goes to the depths of the bottom of the ocean. He's in the Mariana Trench. He does enough to be able to do Teshuvah, and now he's t- he's taken a larger pile of Averot and turned it into, but I'm not sure that's the case. I don't know if that's the case, because true Teshuvah on that level of depth would probably, I would imagine, would be super difficult. Nathan, yes? So baby, the baby was born on level 47, and his entire life gets up to level 48, and the Rasha goes to minus 49, then he does incredible Teshuvah, and he gets the minus 49 turned into plus 49, so he traveled 98. The Tzadiq traveled one, and the Rasha traveled 98. Okay, I have one problem. A guy was born on 47, and just goes up to 48 in his whole life. I struggle with calling him Tzadiq Gamur. That sounds to me like Tzadiq a lazy. <laughs> not Tzadiq Gamur. I'm not sure. So there's lots of approaches. Murray. The Baratah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> He, he uh, said, mm-hmm. "Atzov, wrestled wrestle So the but the one since he makes teshuvah, inserting the Hashem with both sides of his heart, with the inclination to do evil. they turned it around and turned it into the atzov. So Murray is suggesting that the the rasha has now used both of his hearts. I, I struggle with accepting that. Can I tell you why? Because if the Sadiq gamur didn't fulfill the chol levavecha to serve him with both of his yitzarecha, then he's not a tzaddik amur. Because <laughs> it's a pasuk in the Torah that he has to keep. So I want to share, perhaps, a different approach. Yeah? The he's subject to failing eventually. So you're presenting an idea that the tzaddik is, he's not tasted the cheeseburger. So when he walks away from the cheeseburger, he doesn't really know what he's missing. Right? You may have seen the ad for it, but with like, for some reason is always bouncing objects. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Whenever they're taking a hamburger on the, in the commercial, like the tomatoes are bouncing, everything is always moving in an advertisement when they're creating a hamburger. I'm not sure why that doesn't, art does not mimic real life there. Okay, so the Sadiq, he doesn't know what he's giving up, so therefore he's not being rewarded on the same level as the Rasha. Maybe I hear that also, but it doesn't doesn't see now again, when I'm arguing with you, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that is part of the answer, but I still feel like something is missing. Okay, Adina, last one. Beautiful, I love that. So you're saying, you're expressing that um, the the tools is what the Gemara is talking about. All of these ideas are beautiful. And I think they touch on different facets of what is just true. But I just want to point one thing out. Can I ask you a question? Let's review. In the place the Baal Teshuvah stands, Tzadikim, Gimurim, and Amumni do not stand. I'm standing over here. Dan, you're standing over there. Who said this place is better than that place? You just can't stand in my place. Okay. I don't know if I could stand in your place. The Gemara doesn't say if Ba'ale Teshuvah could stand in the place of Tzadikim Gimurim. What the Gemara is saying is that there is an aspect of what the Ba'al Teshuvah has achieved that a Tzadik Amur has not achieved. So the very first thing when you're learning Gemara is what does the Gemara say? (laughs) And what doesn't it say? It doesn't say that a Ba'al Teshuvah is better then a Sadiq gamur. Our conversation of yesterday. So all the answers, we're trying to answer a supposition, which may or may not be true. Nathan earlier was saying something yesterday, that every single person in this world is truly a Baal Teshuvah. And if you're not a Baal Teshuvah, again, I would ask, are you a Sadiq Gamor? There have been, in the history of Am Yisrael, uh, you know, Rabbi Mizrai quoted four the other day of Tzadikim gimruim that did not sin. But he, he didn't mention chanoch. Um And Hanuk is taken away before he has a chance to sin. Illustrating that Hanuk dies without ever having sinned. So added to that list is a fifth at least. Okay, So there's different opinions exactly how many, how many there were. But okay, that never sinned ever. But is that what the Gemara is talking to, to those five people? I think the Gemara is talking about, right, um, uh, your average Tzadik Gamur. Tzaddik Gamur doesn't mean that you never sinned ever. So in order for that tzaddik Gamur to be a Tzadik Gamur, he would have also had to have been a Baal Teshuvah. So what are we saying over here? I think maybe there's another way of learning this Gemara. So let's try and analyze this together, and I, I think that this is very powerful. You know, when you look at a human being who has many mitzvot, many good things about him, and many difficulties, many challenges, many things about them that is not perfect, you look at this makeup of the human being, and you think, wow, this is a complex creation, beautiful. Now you think, if this person is gonna achieve something, and you try to point in this person to the place within him which would generate his greatest achievement and accomplishment. Odds are most of us would take a finger and point to that person's sechel. This guy is very smart. What he's gonna achieve in his life is gonna be down to his brains. This person is very courageous. What they're gonna achieve in life is gonna be due to their courage. This person in his life, this guy is very innovative. What he's going to bring to the world is his creativity. And that's what's going to make him, that's what's going to give him his place in the world. When Moshe Rabbeinu is about to take on the biggest job of his life, saving the Jewish people from Egypt, what does God tell him? When he calls him to his great mission, what does God say to Moshe? Moshe, Moshe. And what does Moshe say? Hineni. And what does God say to him? Here I am, I'm ready to serve. God says to him, Take your shoes off of your feet. Because the place that you are standing on is holy. This place is holy. We said earlier that this mountain was a holy mountain. The place that you're standing on is holy. That's a literal explanation of the pasuk. But there's another understanding of this pasuk. This place that you're standing on is holy means Moshe Rabbeinu. You and I are about to have a conversation. And you know, there's a really great, neat trick that you can play when you're God, and that is that you know what's coming. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Hashem must say that all the time. So what is Hashem doing for Moshe. He's answering his question before he asks it. He's challenging Moshe's challenge before Moshe presents it. God's going to ask Moshe for something incredible. And Moshe's answer is going to be, I can't. And Moshe's going to tell Hashem why he can't. But what Moshe does not understand is that it is not his greatness in nevuah, that is causing God to pick him. It is not the fact that he comes from the family of Amram and Miriam that is causing Hashem to pick him. It is the thing that Moshe thinks is the reason why he cannot be the leader, which is in fact the reason why Hashem is choosing him. Your humility is not a problem, it is an asset. Your hesitance or inability to speak as we've explained prior, is not the reason why I wouldn't want to choose you. I'm not choosing you in spite of your speech impediment, Moshe. I'm choosing you because of it. I want someone that when I channel my word through them, the people will know if it is the person speaking or it is me speaking. For when Moshe spoke, the one person who does not get healed at Mount Sinai, is Moshe, not anybody else. And the Bechor Shor says that the reason for that was, was so that when Moshe was speaking from himself, he spoke with his lisp, with his speech impediment. But when God spoke, Shechina medaberet mitoch girono, the, the Spirit of God spoke through Moshe's throat, girono, it bypassed the speech impediment. And there was no speech impediment. That made the people know that this was God's word, not Moshe's. Moshe says, I can't speak. Hashem says, that's exactly how I like it. The place that you are standing upon is holy, where you are. You, away from your home. You, underappreciated as a shepherd and not as the leader of the people. You, as a person who risked his life for another Jew. You, here, in this downtrodden, degraded place. This is who I'm choosing. Perhaps that's what the Gemara means. (laughs) You think that it is the things about your character which are purest of form and the most developed that that will be your story and your destiny. But God didn't want that from you. What he wanted was this area of weakness that you turned around. Hashem wanted you in the moment where you overcame your fear. Hashem wanted you in your hesitation. Hashem wanted you in the thing that you doubted yourself. And when you shine from that place, that difficult work, that self-sacrifice for Hashem, that was what created your greatness. That's what Hashem's asking from you. And my friends, I think that's the opinion of the Rishonim who say that the Mishkan commandment, it was given to them when? In the aftermath of the Egel, when they served what was another God, or when they served Hashem through some form of intermediary. It's true perhaps that this crown had been handed through the generations, but God chose a moment when he said to the Jewish people, I'm Israel, human beings. We were built in a way where it was almost undeniable, almost inevitable that we would fall. Look at what I'm giving you. I'm giving you the mishkan, my presence, in your failing. Because it is in the turning around of that story that human beings become divine. You tzadiq gamur, you're acting as you were created. Show me the person who's fighting their nature. Show me the person who's going against their desire. Show me the person who's struggling to rise. In that space, I see Yisrael. In that space, that's where Hashem is appearing in this world. The divine spark is manifesting, spirituality trumping that physical pull, that gravitational pull towards the earth. Those opinions say that where do we place this? We place the Mishkan in the aftermath of the Egel because God wanted to show them that in rising from sin and mistakes, a person might find their greatest triumph and their life's story. When Hashem asks this of us, we learn perhaps what might be our greatest lesson of all time. And that is a challenge to look back in your history and to see your greatest failings and ask, what if instead of running away from this or hiding from this, or thinking that that's just one loss in a string of victories. What if that was the presentation of the greatest victory of your entire life? Look back at your mistake and say, is there in this moment, in this dust, in this coal, a diamond? Is this my diamond, the diamond of my life? And when the chachamim say, That I'm able to say this because in Mukdam Ume Torah, there is no before or after in the Torah. They are not just giving you a literary device. Look, it might not be sequential. What they're saying is the deepest thing you ever heard. How does teshuvah work? When a person does teshuvah for a mistake, we know that we say that the person can go even after a sin. Amonai. Amonai, God could create a relationship with them, post-sin, which is exactly the same as the relationship he had with them prior to the sin. Amonai, Amonai, I am the God that was connected to you before you sinned, and I am the same God who's connected to you after your sin. How could God do that? How could the relationship be the same before the sin and after the sin? The answer is, that for God, there is no before and there is no after. Hashem is above time. So God's question, if the someone does Teshuvah, is at what point in time, from which vantage point in time should I as God choose to see you? The nature of Teshuvah is therefore based on en mukdam u meukhar batorah. God was teaching us the power of Teshuvah by moving the chapter of Mishkan to after, to before the Egel and exp- expressing to us this concept. And that's why the Chachamim are explaining it to us in that way. My friends, instead of looking at your successes, try for a second to imagine you flipped the script and you found in the lowest point in your life the opportunity for the greatest amount of growth you might just see that that itself was also a gift from God. Baruch